Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. I'm delighted that for the first episode, we managed to get as our guest, Andrew Castell, who's one of the co-founders of Power Equity. Power Equity is an AIS manager that has been investing in technology companies for over a decade. Andrew's experience of financial services stretches back much further. We conceived of this podcast before the lockdown, and this recording was made before pandemics became the topic of every single conversation that we have. The content itself is relevant to any IS investor, and we hope you find it timeless and interesting. So without any further ado, please enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted today that we are joined by Andrew Castell who's a partner at Par Equity, who I have known for a few years and I think is one of the most thoughtful people in the industry. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Brian, and uh, I'll try to live up to the uh, thoughtful epithet. I want to start by getting a bit of background on how you got into the industry. So maybe you can tell us how you became an EIS fund manager. Somewhat by accident. Um, I've been working in uh, the city in London as a um, initially trained as an accountant, then I was an investment banker, and then I was restructuring broken insurance businesses. Moved back to the ancestral homeland and uh, through a series of chance encounters, ended up co-founding a venture capital firm. It was a return to doing something that I'd always wanted to do, but had uh, made a, a sort of detour that... Uh, took me through a number of years and uh, a number of interesting learning experiences, but mm. investment actually is pretty interesting. When you say interesting learning experiences, do you maybe want to elaborate on any uh, of those? Well, in terms of what's my day job now, corporate finance work, mergers and acquisitions and so on, uh, and restructuring are in both ways very relevant skill sets. Latterly in London, I was in the C-suite, as the Americans call it, of uh, listed companies. And uh, so having operated at, um, at that kind of level, it's pretty handy when you're talking to founders of uh, growth companies and board members of those companies. So it's, um, it's all useful. None of it was wasted time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly, I, I noticed one or two times there were sort of challenging times in some of the companies that you were sort of CFO of which I assume would be of great help. Yes, it's not very good for the nerves, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's not lovely to be able to say to um, a chief exec of a portfolio company who needs to take some cost out of the business that you've been there and done it, uh, and it's not nice, but at, at least you can reassure them that, that you sort of get through it because no one likes making people redundant. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's, it strikes me as, as a... Chief executive, that must be one of the worst jobs that you have to do. Exactly. Something I've always been slightly curious about is that you're a partner with Power Equity and you have several partners, and you have a variety of backgrounds. You seem quite, in one sense, the background make you look like quite a disparate group, which I think is a strength um, in terms of bringing different perspectives. But I'm just wondering how such a disparate group got together. And I just start by saying that in an industry that all too often, in my view, is is populated with recycled accountants and, and lawyers, and, and I can say that as a recycled accountant and lawyer, the team we have at PAR is different. It's rather like the beginning of the Magnificent Seven, I suppose. We um, 
gradually came together over a, um, a period of about a year. My three co-founders each to an extent knew or knew of each other and so I was the unknown quantity. Um, we've recently taken uh, on a fifth partner, Andrew Noble, who has uh, taken a while to insinuate himself into the uh, into the Carter because um, he came to us as initially on an internship, then he um, became permanent, then he went away to McKinsey, having uh, also taken time out to do an MBA. So we now have uh, an even more diverse group um, in terms of where we all come from. But over 10 years into it, it seems to work. We still talk to each other um, and uh, we still bring different things to the, uh, to the piece. Yeah, that's, that's good. So one of the things that PAR differentiates PAR, it's not unique, but it's different from a lot of fund managers, is that you have an angel network directly attached and you're, um, maybe for, in one perspective, you could say like there's an angel network and you are the professional part of that network. So I thought we'd just talk a little bit about angel investing in terms of a syndicate sort of like you manage. So maybe we, I'm sure most people know what it is, but maybe could you just tell people what angel investing actually is? Yeah, so m- many people will be aware that the term angel probably has its origins in the, in the theatre world, where angels would um, finance theatre productions. Uh, and angel investing is, is not so very different, but instead of theatre productions, um, angels are investing in, in growth companies, which in a way is a shame because uh, things would be much more entertaining if we had uh, a bit more song and dance going on. The nature of angels, uh, the key thing to remember about them, I suppose, is, is that they tend to be rugged individualists, otherwise they would be in funds, um, and they tend to be business angels because it interests them um, and they genuinely want to do something that makes a difference. I think there's a danger sometimes where you get people who are in it more for the hobby than the business aspect or the financial aspects? Uh, the kind of person that makes a, certainly an angel who will go the distance and continue making investments over a period of years, those tend not to be the dilettantes. Certainly you get people who think, oh, it'd be great to be a business angel. And they try it and they find they don't like it very much and they stop. Mm-hmm. But presumably that happens relatively quickly. One of the, the sort of key things that you see angels doing that, that you think, oh, I really wouldn't do that if I were you, is, is start writing quite big checks quite soon. As more experienced angels will, will let them know, and, and as VCs will, will, will tell you, the money that a company first asks you for is rarely, if ever, all the money that that company will need. Mm-hmm. And so... <clears throat> Uh, when you're in a, an investment asset class which can easily see the thick end of a decade or more pass between from initial investment through to an exit, you need to be patient and you need to measure out your powder accordingly. How much of the, the ability to sort of restrain powder for later investments is an issue? Because if a company is successful, presumably they will go on to, I mean, some people see it as a regression where they will get. Uh, sort of seed fund managers or um, you get the sort of the series A sort of professional VCs at you know, whatever stage and it's not necessarily the angels who will look who we participate in or funding those rounds yes and angels typically will provide that first 
stage of external risk capital. And it's probably best seen as a kind of relay race. So different investors will come in at different points in the race and hand over the baton. One of the problems of being an angel um, is that quite often you hand over the baton to a venture capitalist and they will spend five minutes beating you about the head with it uh, and then <laughs> run off um, to the next bit. Because, uh, there's a nasty tendency in some quarters to um, layer on preferred share classes, which essentially can suck the juice out of the investment for the, uh, for the earlier investments. And, and in Scotland, we have a very good case study of that in the uh, instance of FanDuel, where the business was doing pretty well, but ran into some difficulties, ended up being sold for about $500 million, which you'd think would be pretty decent. But uh, actually, the, the last two investors in had pretty much the entirety of the exit proceeds, and the founders and early investors got nothing. And this is all to do with um, preferred share classes. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, 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 there's some stories floating around about how uh, bad some of these have been. I've also heard that recently the terms of these, prefer these sort of preferred shares have become less onerous because essentially because there's more capital around, I think, is my understanding. Is that something you've seen? Or? The nature of our portfolio is that we tend not to be sitting in companies that are going to be aspiring to be unicorns. We're slightly more um, pragmatic than that, but we certainly see preferences and we see term sheets um, coming into our portfolio companies for um, the next level of finance where preferences can be quite aggressive. The good thing about EIS and to an extent VCTs is that it's pretty hard to be compliant with the rules governing those schemes and have very aggressive preference structures. But bless them, um, some managers out there do cry their best. Mm -hmm. A company that is in a position to be discerning and to pick and choose between funders will have some ability to draw the sting out of preferred share class structures. But as the patient capital review showed, there is something of a shortage of, of money in that um, up to 5 million, in fact, beyond level. So not many companies are so awash with offers of capital that, that, that they can really drive the terms. Maybe what I've been hearing is about the larger sort of area. I mean, certainly the soft bank effect, which has sort of dragged, it's, had a, it's like a star that's had this gravitational effect on the whole industry, where it's you know, not only on valuations, but there's certainly Silicon Valley seems to be awash with capital for the right thing. Yes, there's certainly been a lot of money raised um, and uh, in a cyclical industry, particularly well, cyclical, both in terms of capital inflows, but also um, realizations and, and the valuations you can realize at. There are certainly periods where there's more money around and, and in the valley, I think now is one of those periods. Uh, and yes, that will tend to drive down mm -hmm. valuations and will tend to, as an alternative to prices coming down, uh, lead to looser terms. Mm -hmm. It's the same in the insurance industry. Yeah, um, someone made a joke in the in the insurance industry about how um, they they were very frustrated because many times the premium rates got good, they didn't have the capital to take advantage of it. Uh, not appreciate the irony that actually those two were kind of intimate, intimately related. Yes, it's why insurance guys are particularly and strangely chirpy when you get to hurricane season and uh, there are actually a few big hurricanes going on because you'd think they'd be very depressed, but actually mm -hmm. it takes capital out of the market and drives prices up.
So coming back to angels, obviously angels are supplying capital um, as, as the first step. But how much value do angels bring outside capital in terms of, sort of the other things that they can do for companies? For us, the capital that they bring is almost the least important. It's by no means unimportant, but actually the real value add is that angels are a force magnifier for our core team. When we first started Par Equity, our thinking was, if you look at returns to venture across the whole market, the market returns are all right, but nothing, frankly, to write home about. The good returns tend to be from the bigger venture funds, and the smaller venture funds tend to do pretty badly in the grand scheme of things, to the extent that angels, particularly angels who operate in, in organized groups, um, can confidently expect to outperform small VC funds on average. And we wondered why this might be. And we thought, and PAR has been based on this hypothesis, that if you can incorporate some of the obvious beneficial characteristics of angels and add money to the piece from a fund, for example, you should do well. And, and the bits that we really like about angels is that they are connected, so they tend to see uh, investment opportunities because if you come from a widget background, other widget entrepreneurs may well come and talk to you about their new business idea. This then feeds into origination because they can then bring this new team that wants to do, do something great in widgets uh, along to us, for example. They can help with commercial due diligence. We don't rely on that diligence, but we do take it into account when we're looking at something. And if we're investing, they will be investing and writing a check as well. So they're backing their judgment with their own money, which is a critical differentiator between an angel and, for example, a corporate finance or other introducer. Once we're invested, the angels generally can, it's not all of them, but some of them are interested in getting involved with portfolio companies and bringing their managerial skills or whatever else it may be. Now, that involvement could be highly informal, just mentoring, or it could be actually taking a board seat. And where they're taking a board seat as our appointee, we obviously don't have to spend the time with that portfolio company that we would otherwise have to spend. And we can focus on the ones which really need intensive help and let the ones which are doing fine tick along under the um, stewardship of, of a business angel whose business acumen we trust. It's the intellectual capital, if you like, that uh, is their real value add. And the fact that they allow us as a relatively small team to pay attention to a larger number of portfolio companies than would be the case if we were a conventional venture capital firm where the fees from a fund will only pay for so many people and those people can only work so many hours a day. And therefore, what you tend to see with small VC funds is that the team focuses on the obvious winners within the portfolio and neglects the also-rans, mm -hmm. some of which, with a bit of time and effort, will return some money mm -hmm. to you in due course, which they might not do if you just ignore them completely. I mean, how do you differentiate, in a sense, between what you as the power equity team do and what the angels do? Is it kind of you're doing the same thing but on a spectrum, or is there a distinct differentiation of roles? Well, as you mentioned earlier on, we come from different backgrounds within the team here. We've hired some pretty able investment managers, young, ambitious Turks who uh, were snapping at our heels, 
um, to do a fair amount of the transaction execution element. And that frees up the partners to operate at a slightly more strategic, harder hitting level, we hope. And different people within the team will roll their sleeves up in different ways when it comes to companies that really need some, some help. Presumably that depends on the sort of help that they need at the time. Exactly. So, for example, uh, we had a couple of exits from our portfolio last year where I was involved to the extent required, uh, just helping those companies through that, that process. Usually um, there will be a pretty decent advisory team involved and therefore external, external advisors. So there's not a lot of time spent at the coalface of, of the doing the deal, but it always helps particularly if you have a management team who haven't been through that kind of process before to have someone mm -hmm. sitting on the board or mm -hmm. in the boardroom for whom it's not their first Kind of holding the hand a little bit and exactly. saying this is normal, this is abnormal and what they should or shouldn't expect. Exactly. And you mentioned earlier about angels being by nature to some extent individualistic. Do you find that they sort of blend into the syndicates or is it a case of they, they very much want to do their own thing and they've got their own agenda or, or is it a case of the syndicates tend to attract the slightly less individualistic ones? They seem to like being in a syndicate for a couple of reasons. One is that it's, it's a club um, really and they like to be around people like them and that tends to be people who have made some money and, and been successful in business. They therefore within reason respect the opinions, judgments and, and so on of their, their peers within that group. And so when we do investor evenings where we will, it's not quite Dragon's Den, but some people sort of compare it with that. We will have management presentations from companies that we're considering making an investment in uh, and they will say their piece to the room and you'll then have Q&A afterwards, which might be part of the formal Q&A or subsequently when there's an opportunity for people just to sidle up and, and put further questions to the management team, it's, it's much more informal. You get different people asking different questions and clearly different people have different things that they know about and therefore tend to ask about. And so it works pretty well in that respect because you're getting a whole a triangulation of a whole number of different perspectives and, and, and interest areas. If you've got angels coming in, do you actively try to maintain the quality of the network in terms of do you, so if people coming in, is it just a case of, do you need more than a check to actually get through the door? Well, you said earlier on that we're not unique, but unusual. Um, I think at one level, we always get told off for saying fairly unique, but I think we're <laughs> especially uh, unusual in that we, Parfum Management Limited is a, an FCA authorized business. We provide an investment service to business angels as a regulated activity. And that has practical consequences, which in particular mean that we have to apply a much higher bar to admitting people into our syndicate than the other informal angel groups that, uh, that, that exist. And we've looked around the marketplace and we still haven't found another authorized firm that looks after angels on the same regulatory and contractual basis that we do. What you tend to find are angel aggregators or wealth management firms or whatever else where they don't actually do anything for the angels on a contractual basis. They just essentially have a list of people who want to be in a club mm -hmm. to, to make this kind of investment. And they will 
in the very vaguest possible way, let them know about investment opportunities. Mm-hmm. But they're not contracted to, to provide that as a service because uh, from a regulatory point of view, it can be quite a lot of paperwork involved and, and hoops to jump over and, and the investors have to demonstrate a level of quite a high level of investment sophistication mm-hmm. and ability. So we have to be selective in terms of who we let in and we are selective about who we let mm-hmm. in. But it's not merely a question of having people who are savvy investors. It's also a question of what else they bring to the table. So do they have a background in business? It doesn't necessarily have to be technology, but are they seeking to bring that wider skill set to bear? Or are they happy just to be someone who turns up to your investment presentation and writes a check every month or two? That's fine as well. But the ones we really prize are the ones who have that additional element to them around helping us originate interesting investment opportunities and helping us look at them and helping us manage and grow value post-investment. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think chatting to one or two other networks, there's a kind of Pareto effect in the sense that sort of the 80-20 sort of rule where you've got a network of whatever size and there's a proportion of people who are active in, within that and there's a proportion that some extent are either along for the ride or probably in some cases they join the network thinking they might have more time than they've got or whatever and they're sort of doing what they can. Yes. Um, presumably you find the same sort of thing still. Exactly uh, and because we're growing our EIS fund and we're hoping this year to see a, another doubling in size of the inflows for the year what we're able to say to the ones who are maybe less active than they probably intended to be is well look we have a fund which is investing in exactly the same things as the syndicate is, you might want to think about whether that's just easier. And we do get this sort of steady drip of people who decide that actually being an angel is rather hard work than we thought it was. <laughs> and therefore, why not just come mm-hmm. in as a fund investor? But many of them have uh, strong opinions about their own investment uh, discernment and abilities and, and much prefer to be syndicate members. And, and that's fine with us too. You mentioned about writing small checks. I mean, one thing that I've seen a little bit is um, when it, and certainly from my own experience, there's, there's an element of learning how to invest in this area because it's not like investing in the stock market. So it, you've got to make, almost make a few mistakes before you actually. Yes, can. and like everything, it's very rare where you, you can be an instant expert no matter how much you want to persuade yourself that you can. Uh, and I very much hope that I'm more effective at what I do now after a decade or so of doing it uh, than I was at the outset. And the same would go for angel investing. So hopefully the, uh, it's the same for angels as anyone else. You learn from your mistakes. What sort of challenges are there in running an angel network? What, what's the difficulties? The phrase that's quite often trotted out um, by fellow sufferers is it's like herding Budgerigars. Having cats is difficult, but when you're working three dimensions, it's even worse. Our syndicate's relatively large. It's it's generally bubbles around at at, at the thick end of 200 people. And so you do get the sort of crowd effect going on. So our job is often, in respect to the syndicate, one of just nudging them in a given direction. And we know that for any given investment company, there may be a couple of dozen of them who come into it. But as long as that couple of dozen includes people who know their onions around whatever it is that that company might do, then, then, then we're happy enough. Because as I said earlier, the money 
is very helpful, but it's actually mm -hmm. the secondary. Yeah. And presumably if you've got a couple hundred, actually, you almost don't want 200 people chipping in their opinions. Exactly. And also what tends to happen is that whilst there is a broad church in terms of people's opinions, there are only so many opinions that you can have about <laughs> um, any given company. And, and most of those distill down to, I like it or I don't like it. And then it's always interesting to know the reasons, but those reasons as well are, are usually selected from a menu. So there aren't often any real surprises about why someone does or doesn't like something. Inherently, the thing to remember about technology investment, and we'll probably get onto this later, is, is that you're investing in technology businesses and, and the business part is almost more important than technology. If someone was listening to this and said, oh, I'd never thought about becoming an angel, but they like the sound of it, what would you suggest they go and do? Well, the easiest way into it is equity crowdfunding. Now, there's a lot of chat about how equity crowdfunding is going to eat business angel um, investment, but actually the two are the, exactly the same thing. It's just a different medium. But like everything else on the internet, internet may bring accessibility in terms of as a member of a crowdfunding site, you can access deal flow. Mm -hmm. But it also brings distance because you don't get to, you rarely get to eyeball the management team. So it's a way for Maybe on to, video. <laughs> exactly, which isn't quite the same or indeed <laughs> on podcasts. But um, it is at that sort of gateway and people can, can play about and the, the amounts of money tend to be or can be very small. So it's a relatively low risk way of, of, of doing it. The more major league side of things is when you join a, an angel syndicate where people are making investments of five or ten thousand pounds quite routinely and, and many rather larger check sizes than that uh, into companies and clearly for most people they would either be heroic or have no uh, no concept of, of, of risk reward portfolio construction if they're putting that kind of money into early stage investments unless they are pretty affluent so the kind of angels that we deal with are a relatively small percentage of the overall population simply because you need to have a pretty broad portfolio of, of investments to accommodate even a relatively small amount of, of venture capital within it, unless you are 10 or 20 or 30 years away from the point at which you actually really need your capital. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's a general underappreciation of the diversification that's needed within the industry. You know, I've had conversations with people where they think half dozen investments is a good spread, and it's like, no. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've, I've seen articles that suggest that 50 to 100 is, is a better portfolio size if you're doing the really early stage stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a little bit extreme, but I certainly wouldn't argue strongly against it. Yeah. I've never sat in on a meeting between a, a financial advisor and, and a client talking about venture, but my expectation is that if one is delivering financial advice on this kind of thing, it would be talking about building up a portfolio of, over a period of years, putting money to work through as many different companies as you sensibly can, which EIS funds are a pretty good way of doing that. But even within the EIS fund universe, you probably want to look at different managers mm -hmm. as well as different time slices. Yeah. yeah, because everyone's got different specialities or different areas. Exactly. Uh, I mean, one interesting one I think you think about part in particular is you are Edinburgh based, and 
while you don't necessarily ignore what's going on in London, I think the majority of, of, of where you invest is definitely outside London, which is, um, gives you a distinct bias. It, it does, in, yes. in that respect. What do you find uh, the differences? Uh, I mean, maybe it's hard to speak if you don't invest in London that much. But We get plenty of applications from companies in London, but the view we take is that in London and for that matter, Oxford and Cambridge, there is a lot of money sloshing around. And, and as we were discussing earlier, where you have a lot of money um, sloshing around, that often is, reflects itself in either easy terms or high valuations or both. Uh, and in part, high valuations are required in London because larger amounts of money are required because costs are higher. And one of the things we are mindful of is that we're investing in businesses that needs to have global potential. And if you're investing in a business that aspires to operate on a global scale at some point in its growth trajectory, why does it need to be in London as opposed to Manchester or Edinburgh or mm -hmm. anywhere else where that's relatively low cost environment where you can hire the people that you need to hire for less than you have to pay for them in London, mm -hmm. where you won't be constantly worrying about them just jumping ship to the next startup that can pay them another 10,000 pounds beyond what you're paying them. So we think that um, unless there's a very good reason for being in London, why would we want to invest in a company there? it's just such a high-cost environment. Presumably you're not entirely in a location agnostic because particularly you focus on technology area and technology companies will need a lot of people with specific skills. Yes. And, and you'll, presumably these businesses need to be in places where you have that. The great thing about investing in Scotland at the stage that we invest at is that in the central belt particularly, so Edinburgh on one side, Glasgow on the other, you have a population that is educated, that is, in many cases, there will be people coming out of a very strong university ecosystem because there are some really good research-driven universities across the central belt. Edinburgh University in particular, but, but, but by no means alone. You also have quite a population of, of experienced business people who have an inclination to go angel investing. So on a per capita basis, Scotland is pretty much world leading in terms of angel investment. And this has a knock-on effect in that because it's a pretty incestuous environment, management teams of, of startups and, and scale-ups inevitably are rubbing up against investors on a regular basis. And they're not doing that by being on chat rooms and comparing notes with their fellow MBAs or whatever else. They are talking to investors. And that means that investors and entrepreneurs have a much higher level of understanding of their mutual needs, requirements, objectives than is necessarily the case elsewhere. And, and mm -hmm. certainly when I found, when I'm chatting to companies in other parts of the UK, they can be miles apart in terms of what they think that I need and want, and for that matter, well, I think I have a reasonable appreciation of what they need and want, but clearly it's some way away from, from what I think is reasonable. And the, the benefit therefore here is, is that we have to spend a lot less time arguing the task over the terms of an investment mm -hmm. that we might be making, for example. And that's really valuable because it saves time. It uh, prevents you from spending lots of money on lawyers arguing over points that really shouldn't be argued over. Mm -hmm. 
Does that affect the length of time to investment? It's certainly one of the trends I pick up from Silicon Valley is there's, there seems to be a trend towards rapidity of getting the term sheet out. And, 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 and that might be a function of the, all the capital floating around. Now, I haven't heard the same thing happening in the UK, but maybe it is. I think it probably is a, a function of, of competition. Um, certainly, if you've got lots of people with the intention of wanting to invest in companies and they have lots of money to do that with, particularly in the US where the whole concept of fail fast and move on is, is a more developed concept than it is here in many respects, you will get term sheets banged in pretty quickly. Whether that actually means that the investment will complete pretty quickly as well is, is another question. Our preference is to use quite a long term sheet because we want to have as many of the arguments over the terms earlier rather than later, because if those arguments aren't being done through the medium of lawyers, who of course charge, um, <laughs> then it's better for both, both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, we are relatively quick to get to a term sheet compared to some people, all other things being equal, but because we enjoy quite a strong deal flow, probably because of the association with the angels, um, we're always pretty busy as well. So it tends to even out in that respect. Uh, yeah, um, certainly the flip side of, and I've heard, Again, this is anecdotal, but in Silicon Valley, the flip side of getting quickly to term sheet is that you have investors that are investing in companies where they don't know the management that well because they just haven't had the length of time to build that relationship. And bearing in mind that this is, in some sense, worse than a marriage, in that at least in a marriage you can get a divorce. Yes. Um, once you bought, once you invest in one of these companies, there may actually be no way of, of separating for a long, long time. Yes, I mean, you can get a divorce, but you just may not get uh, your share of the uh, matrimonial, matrimonial assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the analogy of a marriage is, um, in fact, probably uh, a venture capital relationship is, is longer than a marriage in, in California, I, I would imagine. <laughs> and the point is, is well made. The management team are very important. You don't necessarily have to like them, but you certainly need to be confident in their ability to execute their plan. Mm. Unlike a marriage, you can change out members of the management team, sometimes <laughs> the entire management team. So um, it's... Is that something you've had to do a lot of? Or? Yes, we, particularly last year, we went through a, a much higher than usual level of uh, turnover of chief executives within our portfolio. The psychological makeup of an entrepreneur is an interesting one. And, and uh, quite early on in the power equity journey, I read an article which essentially suggested that the dividing line between psychopaths and successful entrepreneurs was an extremely thin, if not indiscernible one. Uh, and certainly, if you look at some of the, uh, the well-known names um, leading companies, in, in particularly in the States, uh, you would think, well, this guy certainly is a psycho. Mm-hmm. And those characteristics, when it, term, it comes to single-mindedness, being able to put aside any consideration for what other people think about you, being very goal-focused and so on, which are all, I believe, qualities of, of psychopaths, they're great. So just as long as you don't actually kill people, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> useful. But those qualities can become less useful as companies grow and require more management and empathy of keeping your staff aligned and valuing them and all those things that grown-up companies need to do. So in most growth companies' lives, you get to a stage where 
the people that founded that business may not be assets to that business anymore. And there needs to be a way of, if not necessarily removing them totally from it, just finding things for them to do where they can make a valuable contribution, but where they're not expected to, to do things that they really aren't very good at doing. I know, I know there's a view among some people that they, if, if you bring in external management or a third-party management who aren't the founder of the company, they won't be perhaps as dedicated or work as hard for the, for the company as the founder might. Do you see that as a potential issue? Well, it's just human nature. Um, the, you, you have things in the toolbox that can incentivize them in the context of options and they might buy in and so on. So they will have skin in the game and, and a financial interest in, in doing well, but they will inevitably not be, not be as emotionally wedded to the business as they would be if they had founded it. But that's not necessarily a bad thing either because high levels of emotion are not always completely helpful. Hired guns have their usefulness. Um, you just need to be aware that they're different in terms of what gets them out of bed in the morning to the founders. What I'd like to do is move on to our standard questions. These are the questions we ask all our interviewees. So can you tell us what the most recent investment you made and why did you make it? Well, we transact about two and a half um, investment rounds a month on average. Um, and the one that we closed most recently was a follow-on investment into a business called Vert Rotors. And what Vert does is they have developed a design for a small-scale screw compressor and screw compressors. What is the screw compressor? Uh, it compresses things. Uh, <laughs> and it does so by means of a beautifully engineered screw conical screw that sits inside a sleeve which also has a profile to it and they contra-rotate and this is in contrast with for example a, a many kinds of compressor which essentially are, are more like um, motor engines but without the explosions of gas so screw compressors can be extremely small they tend if they work they are um, very efficient there is minimal vibration, if not no vibration. And so they have applications, for example, in satellites and other places where small size, low weight, high efficiency are, are, are highly prized. The really good thing about um, uh, uh, rotors and their screw compressors is that the, um, the inner part of the, 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 the long, thin cone-shaped thing, which has a slight screw to it, it looks a lot like a unicorn horn, and so it's always pleasing to sit there <laughs> and contemplate what might be in the future. Ah, <laughs> here's hoping. The classic three components for venture capital investment are market, product, or management. Which do you see as the most important, and why? It's rather like sitting on a three-legged bar stool. If you're missing any one of those legs, then frankly, you're going to fall over. So I don't think that any one of them is necessarily more important than the other, because you need all three. Can you tell us something, uh, a time when uh, something went wrong or your mistake you made and what you learned from that? Uh, the list is pretty lengthy. Um, there's always something that you haven't done um, as well as you might. I think probably of our team, until Andrew Noble uh, joined the partnership, I was the one with the least appalling sporting pedigree. But uh, Andrew, as an ex-Olympian, really has set the bar very high now. But that sort of sportsman's mentality, sports person's mentality of always looking for ways you can improve is, is, is key. Um, so the list of 
little mistakes is is a pretty long one. The list of big mistakes, I think the one that we fall into most often and haven't quite eradicated is one of falling in love with technologies because we get things coming across the desk and you just go, wow, that's so clever. And there is a big danger in thinking that something is such a great idea or it's such a wonderful purpose that it's been designed for that you forget either entirely, rarely, or to a degree more often that it's really important that this great idea has a market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a yeah. Model yeah. So you need something that can actually generate a business. Exactly. Um, or that people will actually pay for it rather than just go, want to go into a museum and go, oh, wow. Indeed. Yeah. If you could change one thing about this industry, what would you change? Um, I've sort of touched on it earlier. I think the, and unfortunately, I really see no solution for it. As you get different investors coming into businesses, you tend to get oppression of the earlier investors. And what that means is that as an ecosystem, the people who are prepared to take the risk to come in at the earlier stages, in effect, they're being disincentivized because they don't get the returns that their efforts and their risk-taking, frankly, should be rewarded with because the juice is being sucked out by the later stage investors who don't have the risk appetite to come in earlier. And if I had a magic wand, I would say nobody gets preferences, everyone's in it together. And that is our ethos as as far as we can make it happen. Our preferred entry point is in ordinary shares alongside founders. Mm -hmm. But many people doing our job don't like that. They're very uncomfortable about it and, and they will try and take refuge refuge in financial engineering. And I think financial engineering is fine in private equity, where it's a very different beast. I don't think it's appropriate for venture. Yeah, there is that element of the individual good versus the social good, I think, a little bit. Exactly. And, and human nature is that you uh, say something pithy and, and uh, Anglo-Saxon to... Uh, uh, to the common interest and, and look after your own interest and that of your investors. And, and it's absolutely understandable and I can't really criticize people for it. I would argue that you may not be looking after your investors as much as you think because what we do see where you end up in situations where there's a bit of an alphabet soup of um, different share classes is that it can actually hamper the next stage of growth if you're not careful. Yeah, because if, you, if you've got two onerous terms, where would the next round go in that sense? Because yeah, they're, they're not exactly. going to want least on, less onerous. They're, they're hard. Sometimes if you're lucky, they'll come in alongside you, but otherwise they'll just want to be first in the queue and you'll therefore push back yeah. to second and then the next time you get mm-hmm. to be third and so on and so forth. Are you a consumer of media? Uh, only in very old school fashion. Ah, so book, TVs, films. What, what's, what's, what's something that you would recommend that we... I should go and see or read. The professional thing to say would be that I'm an avid consumer of improving books on business theory and, and such like, but uh, I'm not. So um, my guilty secret is that I rather enjoy science fiction and the like. And so um, I'm actually now watching on Catch Up the Good Omens um, TV series, which actually is a TV production of a book, which I very much enjoyed. Um, and so that's my decompression mm-hmm. in the evenings at the moment. I don't know Good Omens at all. So. Has um, David Tennant and the actor whose name I forget, but who played Tony Blair, uh, and the um, premise is that uh, 
the Antichrist is, is upon us. Uh, David Tennant plays a, uh, a demon who's been around since uh, the Garden of Eden and um, the other actor plays uh, an angel who similarly has been around since the beginning and they've reached an accommodation over the, uh, over the ages whereby they just agree to cancel each other out and, and enjoy life um, as supernatural <laughs> beings on earth. And so they're not very impressed that the Antichrist and uh, End of Days are um, upon them and uh, work to uh, try and frustrate Sounds like an entertaining premise. It's quite good fun. Yes. What do you wish you knew when you started Power Equity that you know now? I think if I'd known how much I was going to enjoy it, I and mean, I thought going into it that this could be fun and it's really satisfying. But building a business is hard. And, and so I think it would have been slightly less hard work if I'd known how rewarding and satisfying an exercise it would be through some of the sort of um, the challenging times building it. The thing that I'm very glad I didn't know back in uh, 2008 was quite how frustrating being an owner-manager of a regulated business can be. Um, you get a lot of regulations which are there for very good reasons, but mostly designed to fit very big firms that can devote a lot of resource to various things that, uh, that, that are considered to be important. And uh, trying to run a small firm on best practice around regulations not intended to fit you uh, can be hard yards. Mm -hmm. But it's a fact of life, it's what we have to do, so we do it. Mm -hmm. yes. yes, regulation is something that I think is a necessary evil, in a sense. Yes. I'd rather we had, well, well it's frustration, I, I'm glad it's there. Yes, I mean, I first started um, started out showing my age um, in the era of the uh, self-regulating organisations, which was a real alphabet soup. Loutro. Uh, Loutro and Imro and such like. And in those days, um, there was still a possibly naive belief that if you left financial services firms to their own devices, largely, they would do the right thing. Um, and <laughs> sadly, subsequent decades have shown that that probably was a pretty bad way of that does seem to be over-optimistic. Yes. So if someone wanted to find out more about yourself or Power Equity, where should they go? We have a website. Um, much to the uh, chagrin of some of my colleagues, um, I've done my best to make it quite difficult for people to get too far into it. From a regulatory perspective, we can't go promoting things willy-nilly. People can approach us via our website uh, or alternatively people who have a financial advisor and wish to look at EIS funds, for example, um, we are slowly but surely chipping away at the universe of um, certainly the, the better kind of, or the, the bigger and more uh, national uh, firms of financial advisors, wealth managers, and intermediaries to get our fund on their panels and, and allow people to access it that way. And it's probably worth saying that for all we've spoken about angels, you don't need to be an angel to invest in the EIS fund. Exactly. EIS funds tend to have a much um, more accessible price point when it comes to how much you need to invest. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. We very much appreciate you appearing on the podcast. My pleasure. So there you are. I really hope you enjoyed the very first episode of the EIS Navigator. If you want any more information about Power Equity, you can find their website at powerequity.com. The show notes for this episode will be available at hardmanandco.com forward slash podcast. 
If you really like the episode and want to leave us a review, preferably with lots of stars, please, then you can do so on iTunes. If you want any more information about what we do, you can send an email to inquiries at hardmanandco.com. Thank you very much for listening. A new episode will be available in two weeks' time on all good podcast players. And goodbye.